It is currently pissing rain uh, and I'm out in my shed working my little home office space, which is nice most of the time, uh, but it's also a wooden shell and it's Scotland. It's lovely weather. It's meant to go off. It is meant to go off. <laughs> and welcome to Local Zero. Matt is on a well-deserved holiday for this episode, but you are in the very safe hands of Dr. Fraser Stewart and myself, Dr. Rebecca Ford. Well-deserved is a, is a strong term, but he's on holiday. Today's episode will focus on place-based work within communities, a very local-focused episode of Local Zero, and an issue that is obviously very important to, to both Becky and I. Joining us later is Naomi Luda-Thompson, leader of Rights Community Action, to talk about this very important topic. And in his absence, Matt has asked us to let you know that the fourth and final episode of the Carbon Offsetting for Communities miniseries is out everywhere now. It's a deep dive into the nature-based offsetting in Scotland, so check that out wherever you get your podcast. And as always, if you haven't already, it would be brilliant if you could subscribe or follow Local Zero wherever you listen to your podcasts. Fans of the pod can check out our website, localzeropod.com, and follow us on Twitter at localzeropod, where you are more than welcome to get in touch with us. Episode suggestions, questions, constructive criticism are all encouraged. So, how are we doing, Fraser? I mean, while the uh, all the cats away, the mice will play, eh? Matt, <laughs> Matt, being, Matt being the cat. You've got some interesting noises going on in, in your background. Let's calm down for a minute now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm very fortunate to have uh, an uh, a home office outside, which is not a shed. It's not a shed. Whoever tells you otherwise is wrong. It's not just a shed. However, it is a small wooden shell that is very exposed to the elements. So when it rains, as it has been most of today, it's an outdoor wooden box in Scotland. Um, it can, yeah, it can get quite noisy in the background. So if that comes and goes throughout this episode, uh, my apologies. Otherwise, though, everything is everything is good. It's a nice Scottish summer. I just have visions of like the water slowly <laughs> filling up on the screen as, it, as your shed, your, your leaky office shed like wooden structure outside is uh, exposed to the elements but it must be doing wonders for your garden and if anybody listening is interested in gardens do check out the last episode we recorded which was with Kate Bradbury and it was all about greener and wilder gardens and uh, I wonder Fraser have you been have you had any time to implement any of the brilliant advice that she shared i will say the rain is doing wonders for the garden i find myself now i don't know what happened i hit like 30 years old and started saying things like oh that'll be good for my grass that uh, that wasn't in my vocabulary that combination of words up until the age of 30 but it is now. <laughs> um but I, yeah i've been trying to so it's mostly been so our garden we have some plants we have a lot of wildflowers we try and let things try and let things grow out we keep a couple of nice patches for uh for comfort for messing about but it's mostly been food and uh we we pulled some of the we had spinach we had uh shallots we've got some carrots and stuff down we pulled some of those since 
uh, Kate's episode and have been cooking with them recently and it has been really, really nice. How about you, Becky? So we, we've we been growing tomatoes and courgettes. The tomato plants look very good, but they've yet to even, you know, ye- they've yet to yield anything. But the courgettes have been doing brilliantly. Mm. So we've been having some lovely, lovely fresh courgettes uh, going on. And we've got a, a bird seeder, a bird feeder, sorry for the little birds, and just got one of the ones where you can put the big fat bombs in as well. So I think... <laughs> Many people might not know what they are. Just big balls of fat that birds <laughs> like to eat, basically. Uh, so we've had a lot of wildlife in our garden, which has been really, really lovely. So, yeah. Um, but maybe from uh, from birds and wildlife to uh, to lab rats? Oh, wow. You didn't write that. I can see in the notes you didn't write that segue, but it was pretty smooth. <laughs> or it was smooth until I pointed it out. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so anyone, I guess there'll be a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are aware of of uh, of this already. I've seen a lot of people talking about it on Twitter, on, on LinkedIn, on threads. Um, but this is the big news that the hydrogen village trial in Whitby, so that was a, a trial that aimed to install hydrogen boilers into people's homes in Whitby and, and serve them with hydrogen to see what it would cost, how it would operate, etc. Um, after pretty hefty community backlash um, has now officially been cancelled. So this was, this has been rumbling on for a a little while and there's a a similar trial planned in Redcar where by all accounts the community is similarly pushing back against the way that it's, that it's being handled. But interesting that this wasn't a trial that, that fell off the cliff because the technology wasn't there, because it didn't work, etc. It was the community itself uh, that said they they weren't interested. Becky, have you been reading up on this? I, I've been following it. I've been gently following along uh, for a while now. But I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting trial. I also think that there's a bigger, more fundamental problem with how we are talking to people about the future of heating. Because ultimately, this is what it's all all comes down to right is how do we get off the gas grid how do we move to more sustainable um to more sustainable solutions and i worry that can the continual push of sort of hydrogen in spaces like these particularly where it's not coming from the community um can can have sort of potentially troubling messages i mean when we were looking to replace our boiler my husband did his own research and sort of came up with the solution of we should just get a hydrogen ready boiler because that is a lot of the rhetoric in the media. But I, you know, we know that that's just not going to happen quickly enough or fast enough. And we need to be pushing down this route of cleaner heating and heat pumps and, and electrification. And I feel like there's a real, a real whole mishmash of messaging, which is prevalent across the UK. And then, you know, once you then look at kind of the specific communities and how things are evolving in place, there's also a whole lot of problem around how engaged people are, what those messages look like in places and, and how you can really start to put a whole community together around this. So, yeah, it, a big challenge, I think. No, absolutely. I, I think that that point as well, the, the hydrogen for home heating question, uh, whoever you ask in the industry that doesn't work as part of, you know, the hydrogen lobby or or maybe, um, you know, sort of legacy gas type uh, type industry, I think we're mostly pretty convinced that hydrogen is going to play a very little, if any, role 
in home heating. And so letting that rumble on really is, I think you're right, it's slowing down action. But I think what we what we find with this and what's interesting to today's episode is that this seems to be, again, from accounts of people involved in the, or people from the community that were supposed to get the hydrogen trial, um, this is a, a, a really important case of what happens when you try and do something to people and to a community versus trying to do something with them. And now that's not just because, you know, hydrogen, there's a lot of a lot of um, misguidance, misinformation around hydrogen and what it can do, which the community itself noted when they heard from other experts in the field. It's not just about that. For anyone who wants to make changes in people's homes or in or in communities, it's not enough to say, we've got this solution, we want to give it to you and we want to figure out a way for you to accept it. You have to be designing solutions with people that that suit their needs and that that meet the things that that they want in their lives or the things that they they don't want, as the the case might be. Somewhere else we see we see this play out increasingly. And now I see this in my local community Facebook group all the time. The big thing around here, now I'm in Angus in the northeast of Scotland. The big thing around here is the build-out of transmission lines, of electricity transmission networks. We're expected to get a whole load of new big pylons. Everyone in the country generally, not not everyone of course, but most people in the country agree we kind of need to do the net zero thing, we need to build out transmission to deal with renewables. But what's seen to be happening here is networks come along and say, we're building this infrastructure on your land, what is the least bad way that we can go about it? And that premise of we're doing this, how do we get you to accept it rather than how do we work with the community to develop the the solution or the plan or proposal that works for everyone, suits everyone's needs and unlocks those opportunities. That engagement piece fundamentally is a, is really, really critical to get net zero done full stop. Yeah, so what so what you're saying is we right now our kind of prevailing paradigm is we're doing this to you or we're trialing this on you, you know, and I think there was um a great quote just looking back to the uh, the hydrogen trials where where one of the residents said I wake up in the night thinking about it, we're guinea pigs or others talking feeling like rat, lab rats and mm. you're you're absolutely right, you know, how do you how do you flip that entire paradigm and move from this perspective of we're doing net zero to you in the least worst way to how do we support communities who generally have very strong opinions and can be passionate about a whole lot of stuff. How do you take that passion? How do you translate it? How do you mobilize that action? And how do you really support them to to drive forward and create things that not only will benefit wider society in the UK, but will benefit that community as well? And, you know, I think we've got the most perfect person (laughs) coming along today to help us through this discussion. So maybe we should bring her in. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Naomi, and I lead an organisation called Rights Community Action. Well, could you give us a little bit of an overview about Rights Community Action? I mean, how did how did it come to be, and what are the sort of things that you're really focused on? So, I think it came into being because um, I used to be head of planning at Friends of the Earth, so I got a lot involved in a lot of work supporting communities to get involved in decisions that are happening around them. Um, But what I often found is that the focus was not so much on what the communities wanted to see happening, but more on kind of national campaign aims. We need to push for change here. We need to create this legislative change there. And the focus wasn't on how communities changed that balance of power and became more empowered to go, okay, 
this is my place, this is my community, and what do I want it to look like? And how do I go about getting it to be like that? And so that's what Rights Community Action um, was born from, that idea that, you know, communities, you know, getting involved, them kind of taking that responsibility is the most powerful thing that you can do um, to build, you know, resilient communities that can face up to the climate crisis. That hits the heart of so much of uh, of what we talk about. And I know, you know, Fraser uh, up in your shed up in Scotland. Sorry, we're not calling it a shed. Fraser, Fraser is currently sat in a shed-like office structure in the garden. <laughs> um, you know, that's been something that's been... You know, at the heart of the work that you've been doing for the past few decades, Fraser, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, decades is a long time for me, Becky, but it's certainly been at the um, <laughs> it's certainly been at the the core of that work, and I think it's it's important within that within the the context, especially of a of a transition that has involved previously, you know, sort of maybe malign actors or or sort of fossil fuel based uh, companies and, and organizations doing damage in communities into now the the shifting towards the opportunity that we we see ourselves as having from a, a net zero or, a, or a, a transition to combat the climate crisis I think for that to be just it's it's crucial that the focus begins with with people and with with communities and it sounds Naomi as well rights rights community action there's it seems that there's a lot of connections with the you know the environmental justice movement those those old movements where communities were standing up to demand you know better conditions in the in the face of you know developments that that weren't wanted or that were damaging what are some of the campaigns that you've worked on that you've been particularly excited about? Yeah, so I've worked on quite a few campaigns. And of course, a lot of the work that I previously did at Friends of the Earth was about tackling that really, you know, that really dirty development that we just don't want to see um, anymore. And um, I've been so privileged to work with amazing communities. I mean, I've just been there to say, this is how, you, this is what, how the system works. These are what the rules are. And those communities, the minute they've got hold of those rules and they've got, okay, fine. So I can say this, I can go here, I can speak. And I'm, yeah, you go for it. And they've been brilliant. You know, it's just that that matter of like unlocking that door and kind of saying like, no, you have the right to be there. Your voice is so important in this discussion, in this debate. And that is has been true for, you know, an incinerator, a massive mega incinerator in Wales that would have taken a third of Wales's waste and burnt on top of a mountain next to a coal mine, an existing open cast coal mine. Um, and that was the community in Merthyr Tydfil, who are one of the most amazing um, communities, sort of powerful communities who, who stand up and, and say what they want and are fighting, you know, grave kind of injustices. And then you've, of course, got all the, the fracking, the anti-fracking movement that came out. And all of those people, they faced a threat in their communities and then they got involved and as they got involved the the big things that came out of their involvement was climate justice and democracy you know that were the Mm. two really important things they were just like who's making the decisions here is it is it me or is it or is it you know quadrilla um so (laughs) so that's a really important thing and once people move from that okay i'm facing down a threat this is a threat to a community you then kind of move into well what do i want Instead, and that was actually sparked by a lot of the kind of oh, but you need you need coal, you need energy, and then people were thinking, well, no, actually, I, I want to have renewables, I want solar, I want a different solution. That's what I want in my place here. 
Something that I find interesting, Naomi, that you've picked up on there is um, I do a lot of work in, in, and in our, our roles and our, in our day jobs, we do a lot of work with communities directly and sort of locally in our own spaces. And something that I find comes up, in particular, I tend to work in sort of more uh, working class areas or, or deprived areas, air quotes, deprived areas, is that people do seems contrary to what we talk about and what we the prevailing narrative is, but people care about things like climate justice, in my experience, and that sort of democratisation element. And it sounds like it comes through strongly in your work too. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because people say that, oh, people don't care about the big issues. But, you know, my, my experience is, is that the minute people get involved, people care much more about the planet than the government does or than the authority or the regulator, you know, they really care. So um, when we were in, in Preston New Road and there was this big public inquiry about this um, application for fracking, a hundred people spoke at the public inquiry. It's the most that the planning inspector had ever had at a public inquiry to speak. They raised an age from 10 to over 80. Um, and everyone spoke, they had their, their 10 minutes, and they spoke about different things. So farmers were speaking, children were speaking. But that moment, you know, that's such a powerful moment, because in that room, you know, you have the table where you sit and you say your piece, you have the inspector who's basically chairing the room, and then you have the developer and the council, and then you have the public listening. And that debate is being had in this incredibly powerful forum where everyone's listening, and it's the only time when the developer has to sit there and listen to what people have to say. And that right is really, really important. But lots of people will be like, I don't belong there. So that encouragement and that support to get people into that place, you know, that's what that's what we try to do at Rights Community Actions. We try to get people into that space. I feel like you've hinted at it uh, in a number of the answers around sort of the the benefits, I guess, the the, the importance of bringing people to the fore but I'm, I'm just wondering can we can we touch on this a little bit more about why focusing on places and working with communities is so important in this in this context it, you know is it about uh, you know, the 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 social justice angle and you know he, hearing that voice and making sure developers are hearing them um are there other elements you know what what are the benefits that it that you've seen working with communities bring that that just means we've got to focus more strongly on this and moving forward so i think it's it's two things really i mean one i think it's a principled approach i'm just like if you know you live in your environment you're you're living in your community even if you're a commuter out of that community you're living in that space and that's the space that you feel responsible for and you feel connected to so you know that that's part of how we live as as people in 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 society so i think we have to you know we have to recognize that as a principled approach so you care about the place in which you live in even if you're you know our levels of care may may differ i mean and i think the second thing is that people know much more about their place than some officer who's got to cover mm -hmm. a huge area sitting in a council or a developer who's never been there before has possibly got access to land, has kind of looked at that and gone, okay, right, well, we're going to put an application in for that there and that works for our business model. But, but everybody there is going like, oh, but that site floods every year because... But, you know, the council, you know, it's not down on the environment agency records or it's not this or actually we all use that for this um, recreational activity, which hasn't been recognised by somebody in authority. So all of that local knowledge, 
you know, um, and it comes out every time you have some sort of planning application comes in, you know, you'll have a load of people going like, oh, no, you can't, you can't turn left onto that road. That road's like an endless stream of traffic. And you just can't, you can't do that. You can't get HGV around that corner. And of course, well, who else is going to know that? Mm -hmm. It's only the people who live there who know that. And if we, if we kind of ignore that and say, oh, that's not important, we don't value that, that's just the public. You know, it's, it's at our peril. You then make decisions and you look people in to places that just don't work very well. And then we all feel it. We all feel like, well, this just doesn't work. I feel like it's broken. And then you get that disengagement and people feeling really sad about, about places. And of course, the person who's just, you know, making money out of it somewhere or the government who's kind of walks off and, you know, left that decision behind, they're not feeling that impact in the same way. That's such an interesting point. And I remember actually thinking, thinking back a few years and I was involved on the periphery of a really exciting project, actually an amazing project where one part of it, the project installed a large uh, battery onto the national grid. In fact, in your neck of the woods. So it was in Oxford. And I think for all intents and purposes, the project did brilliantly and was a success. But I remember right at the outset when that was being, when it was being planned and I was at a conference in Oxford and I had people coming up to me and saying, well, what, what's going on with this big battery that's going on just over the hill from me? I don't know anything about it. Why is it there? What's it doing? And people really wanting to know more and get engaged and, and often not from a negative perspective, you know, and this wasn't like, uh, you know, a new coal mine or, or, or anything toxic. I mean, it was actually quite a, a positive thing, I think. Uh, but just, the, I think sometimes the lack of, early engagement uh, astounds me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at the way a planning application, has everyone seen that little, you know, that little notice they put on the lamppost? Yeah. The one that tends to like fall off and get water in it. And the text is so small, you need a magnifying glass. You know, like, great, thanks. That's that's really useful. I now know what's going on. So that kind of, that, that sort of statutory, in, you know, giving us that information as a requirement you know, that has been under attack by the government for years. I mean, essentially, we're, we're fighting a losing battle there to kind of get that information out there. Um, and the other thing is, is that this this digitization, which you would have thought, OK, you know, digital, does that create better access for us? Can we find out more about it? I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a go looking at planning applications on a <laughs> council website. I'm just like, really? I could, like, there's like all these responses and then it's like, says a hundred here and I don't know what that means. And what's the ES? What does that stand for? Who knows? So, you know, there's this whole, you know, like other world out there and it's just really hard to get to, to kind of find out what is going on, that people are really interested, like you say. And, and I think that, you know, we underestimate that. And I think society kind of underestimates that at its peril. Maybe it's not society that underestimates it, but really government who doesn't really want us to be involved and know what's going on. Um, because we might be too interested or something. <laughs> <laughs> surely not, surely not. I, some, something that you mentioned and it ties to that last point, Naomi, was... Uh, people feeling like that's their space to be in, whether that's in a, in a town hall or just in the discussion generally and being able to get informed. On a practical level in the work that you do, how do you overcome that? And how do you sort of bring people comfortably up to speed and into those spaces to, to voice concerns or to capitalise on opportunities, as, as is often the case? So I think you have to come into it quite gently because um, planning's got a whole language and it's, it's, it's quite complicated. But 
or it sees it seems from the outset it's quite complicated. There's lots of different ways to get permission for development in England, for example. Wales is slightly simpler. I think Scotland's like slightly simpler as well. Managed to keep the system a bit more simple. England's just very complicated. So the first thing that I I kind of like to do with people is to just to ask them to tell me what's going on in their area and what are they concerned about, and then you go right okay. Well, you know where that decision was made. That was decision was made over here, okay? And then, and then you can work your way into right. Well, if they're going to you, you're really interested in this, um, you know, that's this disused public building in the centre of town. So you want to know what's going on with it, and you want to find out about it. Okay, so this these are places where you might be able to find that information. Now, somebody submitted an application to change that into whatever, or to put solar panels on the roof. This is how you get to an application. These are your rights. You have a right to be consulted. You are able to give your information in. The officer will write a report. It'll go to the committee. And then you kind of go through that whole process. And you can even just act out the different roles. What are the different roles that people are playing in that process? You know, who's doing what? And as you as you do that, you kind of get into it. And you think, okay, I, I understand the steps now. And, and then I can get involved. And what do I say? And it's just like you just say what you think. You give your view because that's always valid and pretty much anything is capable of being a what we call a material consideration planning i.e it's relevant to planning so so that's the big advantage really is that it's 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 relevant and it's valuable your information i think for me one of the most important things is about it's about confidence it's about saying you have a right to be there in that space um and we need to be in the space so that's what i then always say is we have to be in there there's like, you know, if it's just, you know, one man and his dog in the room, we're not going to get a good decision because, you know, we're not going to be doing the right thing because we haven't understood what's going on. So maybe can let's start to make this really real. Can you share some some of the stories perhaps of some of the communities or the people that you've worked with and and how by working together you've seen changes kind of evolve and proliferate? Yeah, so I mean, I can give. I mean, oh, the one thing is to, to just as a, as I know, as a like health warning <laughs> over planning, is it takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're in it, you know. So for example, on the on the fracking um, and the anti-fracking work that we did, from the the, the starting point where we realised that the the council had done a delegated decision, so the officer had made a decision on the application, and then we found out because the permission had run out. And the applicant was was um, applying again for permission, and we said, "But you never did an environmental assessment. You you can't approve that with an environmental assessment." And they said, "Oh, right, okay, right. Well, we'll do an environmental assessment, and we'll we'll then give out the information on that." So from when that happened to when it was in public inquiry, it was about three years. So that's one thing to just be aware of. And the other thing is is that we really concentrated on what was important to people. And, you know, what what planning reasons that a local authority might give to refuse a development such as fracking, where you have transport water impacts. So one of the things that came back to us, which is really interesting on fracking, is they said, well, you know, climate change, really? And we said, yeah, it's really relevant. You have to talk about climate change and the impact on climate change. And we pushed that through and we said that has to be in the public inquiry. So that's a really strong example of if the community hadn't been there, one, we wouldn't have been talking about climate change. And two, we wouldn't have been talking about public health impacts. So those were two things that were absolutely brought in um, by, the, by the community into that. 
um, discussion. So hugely important issues, you know, the principle of the development goes to the heart of the principle of the development. And how, how did rights community action get involved in that from the get-go? What was the, uh, did the community bring you on board? How did you get involved? Yes, yeah, so um, I get contacted by people or people say, oh, Naomi can help you with that. Um, so it's very, much, it's very much word of mouth, which, I mean, that is one of the big problems is how do people get in contact? How do they know that there's a resource out there? Um, because people, it, it works, that's how the network works at the moment. I would love to be able to tell everyone, you know, you could call this number, but then of course I would probably get, you know, three million calls, everybody <laughs> saying, well, actually. <laughs> so that's a bit tricky. So people, you know, communities kind of get put in touch with different networks and then the network contacts me and then I basically do what I call a planning surgery. So I give people an hour and I basically say, you bring everything, you bring your planning application, you bring your issues and you just talk me through it. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happening. Um, and then they do that and then basically we, I identify with them all of their all of the points that they could raise and there are opportunities to be involved. And planning is really political, so you always have a bit of a campaign on the side as well. But you do those two things. And so each case is different, so you can't really give standard advice. So I have run like training courses where I just give standard advice. So actually during COVID, that was, that was really interesting. We did uh, six weeks online. We met every Friday evening and every Saturday morning. Around 100 people signed up. Um, people must have been really bored. Um, so we, you know, we, so we had Friday evening and Saturday mornings to accommodate different people's times. And I just went through the, the planning system, like how it works, the principles, you know, the fact that in 1947, you know, the government nationalised the right to develop land. Previously, if you were a landowner, you could do what you liked. And then it was like, no, no, the government said, no, this is a public right. It's about the public interest. And then I just, you know, kind of went through the process. What's the plan? You know, what's an environmental assessment? You know, what's the right to be heard? You know, what does a public inquiry do? And we went through everything. And at the end of that, you had 100 people who basically knew what they were doing on planning. And, and some of them have gone off and set up their own networks with loads and loads of communities who are basically working on planning stuff in their area. So, you know, I'd basically love to do more of that. I've probably trained, you know, a thousand, maybe a thousand, a bit more than a thousand people. But, you know, I would, I would want to do more of that. And is it the case then, Naomi, we, we talked a little bit in preparation for, for this recording about that, the, the kind of um, stopping malign developments or having your say within developments that might have adverse effects on a community. Is it the case that this is now shifting more with, you know, the sort of the net zero, the just transition narrative? Is this now shifting more into sort of capitalising on opportunities, into shaping local areas into something better that the community wants to see? Yeah, absolutely. So the project that I'm working on at the moment is called We Are Here. So We Are Here is based in different communities. We're in Taunton, which is Somerset, uh, Lowestoft, so that's Suffolk Coastal. We're in East Lindsay, so Skegness is part of that. Um, and we're also in Hull. And what we found in each of those places, so we've been working there for about a year. We've been doing lots of kind of art engagement events. So what's climate change all about? What solutions about? We've done lots of community mapping, which is basically saying to people, well, where are we? And what's around you that you value? What used to be here? What's, what's been lost? And what would you like to be here for the future? And through that community mapping, we've now discovered that basically each of these areas are doing a new local plan. 
So we are gearing up to get all of those communities, all of the people who've come to the to the sessions, who've done lots of creative art with us, to come along and to get totally powered up on how to get involved in their local plan. So, you know, they're not going to know what's hit them in those areas. When we have all these communities coming along going, actually, I, this is what I'd like to have in the plan. This is what I think we should be doing. Because that, I think, I think planning is for people. So people should be planning. And that means that you're talking to everyone else about, oh, you know, they want this and I would like this and I think this. And, you know, the, the vision and the inspiration and the creativity that comes out when people get going, you know, it's like you can't hold back the, you know, the flood, really. It it's, gets really, really exciting. And trying to locate that into an actual legal structure and a legal document, you're basically saying, well, if this is not an exercise that's going nowhere. This is not a vision that's going to sit on somebody's shelf and gather dust. You know, we want to put it in something that's a legal document, which means that the next time you make a decision on a planning application, that matters. You have to look at that and see, you know, what, what that means. I think this is absolutely amazing. And, and, it's, and it reminds me of a number of conversations that I've had, you know, in, in work that I've been doing with community groups where oftentimes you'll hear that the that the challenges that they're facing are not actually related to the the topic of, of what they're looking at. So if they're if they're about renewable energy, like sometimes the challenges are not at all related to renewable energy, but they're around setting up the right sort of legal structure to then allow them to do what they want to do in that space. And 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 so often you hear you know, talking about how the fact it's just so hard to get that help and often there's not the funding there to be able to bring in what can often be quite costly help. And and I've often um, thought about some of these consultations, you know, we're moving towards an era where we're seeing more and more happening at that local level from the planning space. In, in Scotland, we've got... Um, local heat and energy efficiency strategies coming forwards across all the local authorities. In the UK, more widely, we've got loads of local authorities creating local area energy plans. And it's often um, struck me that these are real opportunities for people to get involved, but it's not clear how to create that involvement. So, I mean, what you, you talked about the fact that you trained up over a thousand people I mean I think that's absolutely phenomenal can you maybe tell us about some of the other success stories that you've seen along the way and and what are some of the things that we might need to be thinking about if we want to try and and, and replicate these successes and help them spread out across the UK and help people in communities all around the UK engage more strongly yeah so I think we're in a really difficult time I'm, I I feel like I mean the UK government. Um, for England is changing the rules dramatically through the levelling up and regeneration bill. I mean, it specifically says on the regional strategies, which are kind of a bit like the London plan, so larger than the local, you know, bringing lots of local authorities together. Um, and it specifically says in the bill, there is no right to be heard. Now, at the moment in a local plan, it says there is a right to be heard if you so object. So there's an ultimate, there is, you know, they're changing the rules completely. And I'm really worried about that, that people don't realise that they're losing these rights to be involved. And just, as you say, just when we're coming to the moment when, you know, something I feel I've been banging the drum about for a very long time because I'm coming from the planning side and, and I'm just like, well, planning's like where you make all the decisions on housing, energy and transport. So three, the three big sectors, right? Okay, we're making those decisions mostly 
in local planning. That means they've got to be in the local plan and we've got to make local decisions on them. So, so how do we tackle climate change? Well, we, we do local planning, proper local planning. And just when we're getting to that, like more broadly, that kind of realisation, you know, across the sector where you've got people like Deben and the Committee on Climate Change, you know, um, getting all of that much more in the last kind of five years, I'd say, we're suddenly pulling the rug out from underneath people and going, oh, actually, you know, this is just going to be, I'm, you know, I, me, the Secretary of State, Mr. Michael Gove, I'm going to decide in the morning over breakfast exactly what our national policy will be and that will trump every single local plan in England and you don't have a right to be heard, you don't have a right to have a say and I only have to consult you if I think it's appropriate. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what <laughs> that is means for people but, you know, I'm quite worried by, by what that, that all means. And what what can we do about that? Is there, you know, what, surely this is an opportunity to to engage? Yeah, I think there's. I mean, there's a there's obviously amendments that are going down on the bill at the moment. You've got the lords that are desperately trying to put stuff back in, um, but it's it's a it's a really difficult situation because there's been no no changes have been accepted so far. And the and the thing is is that you know once people get involved in the planning system, they realise you know I really want that right. But the thing is, is that people don't know when those rights go. So defending those rights is, is such an important job to do. But it's really hard because it's not something that's that's front of mind for people. But it's so crucial in kind of, um, you know, tackling things like net zero and doing net zero locally. It is. We talked at the top of the show about the um, the hydrogen village trial in Whitby where the the community themselves came together and completely rejected the trial because it had been handled very poorly by the, the developer or the leading organisations in question. They were, there was a sense that the, the people delivering the trial had already decided what was happening. And this was a tick box exercise. This was, we're doing this to you. And we're here to get your sign off on the, the least bad way of, of doing it. And while that's Maybe not an extreme case. I'm sure you've had lots of experience of, of similar before. And we hear it time and again across lots of other things. Uh, the build-out of transmission has been a big one in Scotland recently, uh, particularly rural Scotland. Um, but it feels so crucial to bear in mind that as we're doing the transition, while maybe people listen to this podcast and us involved in the conversation, see the net zero transition or the low carbon transition as an inherently positive thing, if we fumble this side of it, with people, with with communities, I'd really worry about our ability to to deliver it and to really enable that that opportunity. So I, I guess the the question is, if you had to give a, a piece of advice to policymakers or developers or local authorities who are dealing with uh, with implementing this transition, what is that that piece of advice around communities and around engagement and empowerment? My piece of advice is, don't go in with a finished plan and expect to just be able to get everyone to agree with what you've proposed. Because that doesn't show any humility about the fact that you don't live there, probably, and you don't know it very well. And you're just, you're, you're basically saying you know what's right. And that is really, that's not going to go down well with any community, I don't think. So I think there's, there just needs to be a bit of humility in there. There needs to be a bit of like, we recognise that you live here and you know what's going on. So you really, we'd really like your help. 
We'd like your help to understand how we could make this work here because we want to make it work. We're, we're really keen on this, but how can you help us make it work? And that means that you just want to be open about it. And I think there's, we're, there's, there's such a lot of defensiveness, you know, and I don't understand that at all. I don't understand it. And I think that the other thing is, is that there's been so much, and I'll kind of, I'm, maybe I'm going slightly off piste here, but I feel that this government over the last 12 years or however long it's been in has been basically just very, very busy capitalising the private sector and making it easy for the private sector. And it hasn't capitalised communities. It hasn't put money into communities. It hasn't given them access to land, not made it easy for them. And, you know, that, that imbalance, it's just not going to help us deliver a transition, which means that every single one of us is going to be living in a different space. You know, every single one of us will have to live in an energy efficient home. You know, instead of just paying the energy bills, we actually don't want to have energy bills. That's the perfect solution. And how do we get to that? Well, that we get to that because, you know, every householder, landowner, tenant in the, in the UK is going to have to have some changes. So we all need to be part of that. And I think it's that thing about that imposition, that top down, or whether you generate those solutions in a, in a spirit of kind of collective placemaking, that's crucial. If you, if you want to have net zero as its success and you're a developer or a company, you've got to take on board that you're doing it with people, you know, not to them. When you do the work that you do, Naomi, we, we know that the kind of the NIMBY types can often be very, at least very vocal in planning meetings or are very mobilised. Do you ever meet any sort of um, confrontation to the to the work that you're doing? Do you ever meet any resistance to the type of work that you're doing? I think there is a lot of conflict, I think, inherent in the type of development where well, some people want it and other people won't. Um, and I basically just say, well, everyone has a voice. Are you trying to tell me that your voice is more important than the person who's sitting next to you? You know, so so we've got to all recognise that there are lots of voices in the space. So that's one thing I'd say. We've got to res be respectful of everybody's views. The second thing is, is I think that a lot of it's a conversation. So, for example, I might I was thinking of bringing in low traffic neighbourhoods. So that's a really <laughs> fascinating issue because that is something where it is about improving air quality. It is about you know reducing congestion because what you're trying to do is say to people. We're going to make it nicer for you to walk so you don't have to get in your car. So you can walk that 20 minutes and it's nicer because there's, there's no cars and it's much safer for your kids. I mean, I always think like when my kids were like in the push jump, she's like, they're at the height of the exhaust pipe when I'm going to school. What's all that about? I don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> you know, and that's one person in the car and there's all of us trying to go to school. So... I think, but that gets really confused because people go like, well, you've just, you've taken away my right to drive down the road, yeah? And then you need to have a conversation. Then you need to go like, right, okay. So you don't take away the right to drive down the road. Basically what you're saying is like, this is a public highway. So I think, you know, the point about the public highway is that it's a space that belongs to everyone. And that's why you need to have a conversation. So I always look at a public highway and I see all the cars on it and I think, well, they're taking up quite a lot of space. And actually everyone, you know, that, that space belongs to everyone. And it's come about that technology has changed. And so the use of that space has changed. And it's the majority users are the car users. They're using it much more space than everyone else. 
So let's start the conversation about who uses public space, because it's all about public access to space. And I think that's where the conversation should start about how we use the space around us. And if you get back to that, then everyone can chip in and say what they want. But no, you know, nobody has more right to the space than anyone else. It's a collective public space. And I think that's where the whole conversation about net zero should be. It's about a collective issue that we're all facing and we've got a collective solution to it. For any of our listeners that are thinking, this sounds great, I, I want to get involved, what can I do? What would be your, I guess, one message for people who really wanted to drive change in their communities? What, what can they be doing? What should they be doing? And how can they get involved? Well, I think if you know what's going on in your local area, if you know that there is, for example, I don't know, there's a, it's a community renewable energy scheme, there's a wind farm going up, there's, you know, people are trying to build cycle paths everywhere at the moment. So even if it's something small or if it's a nature reserve or if it's, you know, all of those sorts of things to make our spaces greener and safer and more climate friendly. If you see any of those things, then that is a way in to supporting that development. And it's just to, I think my one message would be, is like, don't be scared of planning, get involved in planning because you have, you're really powerful when it comes to the planning system. So, you know, put that objection in or write down and suggest, right, I'd really like to see this in the local plan. It would be great if everyone did that. It would be really, really brilliant. Not sure a lot of planning officers will thank me for that, but I really think that, you know, Everyone can be a planner. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, pull your neighbours together and write to your local planning officer. I love it. Fraser, you got your pen out? Yeah, I'm writing an <laughs> objection right now. That's me. I'm inspired and mobilised. What a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Naomi. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you to everybody that's been listening. You've been listening to Local Zero. Please do take two seconds to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you do listen to us. And if you know anyone who might enjoy it, word of mouth is a powerful tool. So please do suggest our podcast to them. Also find and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod to get involved with the discussions there. And if Twitter isn't long enough for you, you can email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share those longer form thoughts. And we're open to suggestions as always for your potential future episodes. But for now, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>